This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. I am so thankful that two years ago, the Missouri Arts Council launched their monthly featured artist program as it has allowed me to travel, digitally at least, around the state to chat with a myriad of artists, writers, musicians, poets and multimedia creators. And this week we are going to meet the November Four, a portrait photographer from Springfield, a visual artist and art educator from St. Louis, a coloured pencil artist from Cameron, and a painter of landscapes from Willow Springs. It is a packed show, so let's head out. First stop, Springfield. In our contemporary world where we are all so digitally connected, the truth is that we are so often humanly disconnected. We live in our silos and although we may open our doors to people we know, we are too quick to shun others, especially others who have lives we either don't understand or are maybe a little afraid of. People dealing with addictions, people with disabilities, those who are homeless, the dying. For Springfield portrait photographer Randy Bacon, each of us is a one-of-a-kind original, a one on this planet of now eight billion people. All of us so much more alike than we are different, and each with a story to tell of love, hope, joy, overcoming hardships, loss, living with challenges or differences. And it is Randy's almost 40-year love of photography and his love of people that propels him to create the kind of portrait photography that he says he hopes punches people in the heart, to create positive change, understand and connection with humanity. Seven years ago, he created a non-profit organisation called Seven Billion Ones, the vision of which is to change the world through people and the transformational power of their stories so that the ones can positively impact the billions by setting free their own stories into the world. He calls it a movement and within the movement, he has partnered with multiple non-profit organisations such as Empower Abilities, Kansas City Down Syndrome Innovations, Harmony House for Survivors of Domestic Abuse, the National Alliance on Mental Illness and with Springfield's Gathering Friends for the Homeless, a partnership which was the start of over 200 portraits of homeless people and their heartfelt stories that became not only an exhibition titled The Road I Call Home, which has travelled the country, but also a book and a short, heart-punching 28-minute film, which should be required viewing for all of us. Randy Bacon, welcome to Speaking of the Arts. What a pleasure to be here, and, and I have to say thank you so much for such a lovely intro. You are welcome. I spent so long on your two websites, both of which have got multiple pages, and I was just fascinated by everything that I saw and read. I mean, your work is so profoundly moving, and you are clearly an extraordinary artist, but having spent so much time looking at the portraits on your website, your artistry 
isn't only about lenses and the physics of light, but it is the ability to capture both truth and beauty and humanity and the elegy of life. It seems like you see with your heart first and your eyes second. How does it feel to you? You know, that's. Uh, I'm glad you spent so much time on the side, kind of digging through and exploring all these people, and then, and then, you know, the way that you described it is is really spot on. And that is, even though I'm in a visual medium, and that is portrait photography, I literally want people to feel it almost before they even see it. And that's, I know it's a little ridiculous, but still looking at the portrait and you can just see it's coming from the heart. And so you are exactly right. With my art, it funnels so much from my heart first and then everything else follows after it. Have you always had such an affinity with people? Like where did that start for you? It's been a really, gosh, it's been an unexpected and great journey, you know, Taking up that camera when I was 15, you know, I did not photograph people. I was a shy kid and my self-esteem wasn't the best. And so I did all kinds of stuff as far as photographing, you know, the landscapes and the sunsets and all types of things like that. But then I uh, took the big step and started photographing some friends and family. and, And I started to get enamored with that. And so I got braver and started photographing more people. And I became more enamored with this this idea of the human. And the human, which was unexpected to me, became such an endless source of artistic inspiration. And so over the many, many years, it, it has evolved to where now it's like, okay, I see what the artistic fascination is. And that is when I photograph somebody, if I photograph somebody right here, right now, it would be a totally new experience because I've never photographed a person like that before. And so that's that's fascinating. And through the journey of photographing people, it's kind of like I'm a hairdresser or something. <laughs> they, people tell me all kinds of things because we create a, a very interesting personal bond during the portrait session. And so I started learning that, well, number one, people tend to be pretty self-critical and they they don't see the beauty of the one that represents them. And uh, very few people, very few people look in the mirror and say, wow, I'm dazzled. And for me, it's like, no, you've got to look in the mirror and realize what a miracle you are. And then I also realized it's like life presents challenges to each of us. And so as humans, including myself, you kind of go through life. It's like, oh, boy, I, uh, I don't want to deal with certain things that may be difficult in life. And so we push it under the rug. And what I've learned, though, is that people going through some very difficult challenges come out on the other side a much better, much happier and more wise on their path of life. And so that combo of loving people and loving stories then evolved into, huh, that's my approach. That's, a, that's my approach to my art. There is an immediacy and an honesty about your works, as if I am just standing in front of the people. Like you, the person who's taking the photograph, isn't there. I'm just standing in front of these people and their story And we are all self-conscious having our photograph taken. And I wonder, how 
do you make that moment happen? I talked to a portrait painter a few months ago and he said, you know, he worked from photographs and he would take hundreds of photographs. And he said, at the point when people start to get annoyed, that's when I see their, their inner truth, their, their essence. It, it just something moves in their face at that point. How do you get to that point? Well, each person is different and the approach I have to take with each person can be different. Ultimately, though, and uh, really for lack of maybe a better way to describe this, I, I try to get people to a point where they're basically saying, you know, the heck with it. This is me. And this individual that's across from me with this camera, which typically when I'm doing photo shoots, I'm rarely more than two feet away from their face unless I'm doing a full length. But if it's a close-up portrait, I am in their space. But then the people, they realize that what we are being part of together, that we can trust each other because I'm being very vulnerable with them and I want them to be vulnerable with me, and that it's okay to just be. And sometimes that literally takes seconds, maybe a minute. Mm. Other times it takes quite a while. But ultimately, getting people to where they're like, wow, you know, I am really special just the way I am. And it feels so good to be able to present it in this world that unfortunately has so much stuff today that where we cannot present the true self that we are. Right. Your work shines the light on so many people who either are or have struggled with life. And I wonder how do you prevent yourself from getting emotionally overwhelmed or drained by the rawness of the stories you are documenting over you know, months and years? Boy, I tell you, uh, you know, when I started this journey as a professional photographer, I wasn't doing this type of work. Uh, I was doing more what I would characterize as standard portrait work. Mm. But then as things grew and I started learning more and more about people and I had to capture their stories and then I started realizing it's like, look at all of these things we go through in life. It was really hard for me to do many of my shoots and not be totally exhausted by it. Yeah. And I literally have a friend that's a psychologist, and uh, she once told me, she says, Randy, you have to be careful because I think you have a low-level PTSD mm. because of getting so into the photo shoots. But something triggered in me to where it's like I am so compassionate towards people, but I, I really need to watch the empathy side of it, and that is I can't carry the weight but I can sure have compassion and love for this individual. And so I've learned this separation to where when I get down with a shoot that may be very heavy duty with a topic that is is pretty heavy duty, I, I find that, wow, I may be very tired from that and I have to step away, but I am totally energized and ready to go again. So it's it's been a journey of learning for me as the artist and, you know, when I started photography, I didn't think I'd have to learn that type of thing. But you have a degree in psychology, right? I sure do. <laughs> so you maybe know, that's been helpful. Yeah, I started out going to art school at Missouri State University. And and as I mentioned earlier, it's like my, you know, my self-esteem wasn't that great. And I was, I was somewhat shy. And so I'm like, well, 
I may be better think of a plan B here because I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make a living at photography. And so I, I got my degree in psychology. And and at the time, I'm like, oh, man, but I really, really want to be a photographer. I want to be an artist. Uh, but now looking back on it, I wish I could say I had it all planned out, but it was actually pretty genius because <laughs> I, used, I used my psychology training like a lot more than I ever thought. I can see that. So seven years ago in 2015, you co-founded a non-profit people empowering story movement called 7 Billion Ones, because at that time there were <laughs> 7 billion of us. Now it's just gone up to 8 billion. But what was the origin story for this movement? Well, and first, by the way, we'll be in 2023, we'll become 8 billion ones. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I've been paying for the website domains now for many years. And so we'll be switching to 8 billion ones here probably in a couple months. But, you know, where it all came about was I've had the, the uh, really the great honor and privilege to photograph people and not only my community, but across the United States and many, many, many countries around the world. And we tend to look at life as like, wow, we're really more different than we are alike, especially when you're talking about different cultures and things. And I started realizing from all of these travels, it's like, wow, we're really not that all, we're not really all that different. Mm -hmm. And as individuals, we kind of want the same thing in life. And that is to be loved, to love, to live life of purpose, to have all those moments of joy and on and on and on. And it just made me think, it's like, wow, stories that I would share from here in good old Springfield, Missouri, have the power to uh, connect with someone that can be in a totally different continent. And it just made me think, it's like, okay, if I really believe in the power of a portrait, I believe in the power of this thing called story, I needed to ramp it up. And so I, I just thought, let's just start this thing where we're just going to capture and share stories as often as we can. And I didn't know it was going to go quite this far, but boy, what a ride it's been. I've really enjoyed it. I mean, it's a huge ongoing movement. It now is. you have many people working with you to document and share all the stories you collect. And you have this very lofty vision to change the world. And I wonder, yeah. over the past seven years, what have been some of the moments where you've witnessed that happening? It's what I call the tip of the iceberg. And and what I mean by that is I will get individuals, sometimes I may know, most of the time I don't, they will reach out to me and they will describe to me the life impact that a certain person's portrait and their story had directly on their life. And so with each of the, the stories, I see that every now and then. And for every one that I hear, I think there's probably hundreds and maybe more. And, you know, with, with all the projects I've worked on, probably the work I've done with the homeless mm. has had some of the most profound effects on people. And I very often with that project, get individuals that you can tell that literally has changed their view on the homeless. And it's it's literally like changed how they feel like that as they live their life and, and they're driving down a street and they see a homeless person on the corner flying a sign asking for money. You literally see it's like, okay, 
maybe I can't stop right here, right now and give that person some money, but yet maybe I can do other things. Maybe if I'm walking down the street and one is setting by the, the side of the road or a sidewalk, this time I'm going to stop and just say hi. So if nothing else, they feel like they're a person and they have dignity and they exist. Mm. I hear that a lot. There are so many powerful bodies of work on your website, but this one, the road I call home, is one I wanted to ask you about. And I would encourage everybody else to go and visit randybacon.com and take their own journey through the works that you have there. But I, I have to say that that happened to me watching the film, looking at the photographs and then watching the 28 minute short film. I felt ashamed of my own blindness and my unwillingness to engage. Like I said at the beginning, it really is vital viewing. How did this project get started? Just like what you described. And I was just like you. I have a art gallery and studio. And at that time, it was in right in downtown Springfield. And we have a good-sized homeless population. And I would have individuals that are unsheltered come into the gallery. And I found myself like, mm, if you don't mind, can you please leave? Or it's like, okay, yeah, you can use the restroom, uh, but then leave. And so I wasn't really being a good example of compassion. But there was a couple in particular his name is Kevin, and uh, he's, he's on the website, and you can read about him. But he would come in, and, and I started talking with him, and I started learning about him, and, and he started asking me about my life, and we became friends. And it made me think, it was, it was really an epiphany. It's like, wait a minute, I was being negatively judgmental, and I need to not judge the book by its cover. And so from that point on, I was more open, and uh, I found out that it's like there are some really, really amazing people that just don't happen to have four walls. With that changing in me and uh, a nonprofit approaching me about photographing a few of our homeless friends and getting their stories, that just started it. And it started out small, but uh, here we are goodness gracious, over seven years later, and I'm still photographing for that project. How do you prompt people to tell their stories? Or do they just tell them automatically? Or do you say, can you talk about love? Or can you talk about hope? Because some of those are words that come up in the short film that you made. So I'm guessing there's some prompt that you're giving them, at least when you're doing the video portion of the project. Yeah. And, you know, something kind of what you said before, and it's like when you look at the, the photos, it's like, well, you don't even see Randy Bacon. Yeah. It's almost like I didn't even exist, and it's a very intimate one-on-one -on -one experience of the portrait and the person that's viewing it. And so my creative process is exactly like that. I try to take me as much out of the equation as possible, getting them to a point where it's really we're just hanging out together, visiting, chatting. And so ultimately what I love to do is kind of figure out a person a little bit and figure out now how can I connect that amazing thing called the brain to this more amazing thing called the heart. 
And so sometimes that does involve me maybe talking about uh, something specific about their story. Maybe it is where I talk to them about this uh, powerful word called love or hope or or on and on and on. The words can vary, but doing something to where that brain connects with that heart. And if it ever connects with the heart, it always shows in the face and even little things like the way you hold your face and the way your eyes look and maybe even the way the hands come into play, it all connects, but then it becomes extremely revealing, very honest and very raw. And you photograph and video people so beautifully. Your use of light and shade and composition is so... Uh, heart punching. It, it really is. The final story and the short video is of a man called Daniel Gonzalez. Mm. And I mean, I was in tears most of the way through it, but that one just broke me. Yes. Would you tell us a little bit about Daniel? I mean, you just bringing that up. Uh, it's uh, I'm actually just about to tear up right here, right now. And as with almost everybody in that project, and most of the projects, the the day I photographed them is literally the day I met them. Mm. And not in all cases, but most. And that was the case with Danny. He and a couple campmates came in, and they had heard about what I was doing. And and they came in, the three of them, uh, with just the request that, hey, can we be part of it? You know, will you take our picture? Will you get our story Ultimately, that they wanted to feel important and that they matter. And with Danny, goodness gracious, he was such a uh, tender heart, very gentle. And so he uh, went through the process of talking about the challenges of homeless with the main challenge being really seeing the loss of his friends out on the street. And a lot of times it's not by good reasons. And he went on to tell me, how many he'd lost in that year, and I think I photographed him in late spring, so he'd lost four or five already that year. And when you say lost, they are dying. They died. Yeah. They, they, yeah, they died by various things. And uh, literally just uh, a, a few weeks after I, I photographed him and filmed him, and he was talking about the heartache of losing friends and that when homeless people die, they don't even really get anything listed in the newspaper. So it's almost like they didn't exist. But just literally, it may have been only two weeks after I did that work, I got word uh, from one of his friends on the street that uh, Danny froze to death. Mm. And and so his story was really a heart breaking view of something that I'm sure he didn't know was going to come to him, but it did. And um, the thing about that, after that story was shared and and I I, uh, posted about it, I started getting contacts from many, many of his relatives from all parts of the country. And, And they had not heard from him for a long time. And so in a sad irony, the loss of Danny became the connection of this family. And so with each of them, I got to talk about Danny and what I knew about Danny and and what a great man he was. And and, uh, even though, again, he didn't have the four walls. It's a beautiful postscript to just a, a brutally sad story. It is. Yeah. As I said earlier, the road I call home has traveled around the country, but I'm 
surprised it hasn't been to more places. And I wondered if a community like, say, Columbia, Missouri, wanted to work with you not only to exhibit the works you have already made, but also to have you document our own homeless community. How would we do that? Oh, I'm so I'm so very happy that, that you brought this up, you know, with my work, I do create projects that typically are in exhibition form, so they are, they are exhibited. But for me, like the, the biggest heartache is if I do a project and then we have to put it in a closet because it does no good. And so like with The Road I Call Home and really much of the other work I do, definitely somebody like Columbia, Missouri or St. Louis or, or even beyond – uh, can be like, hey, we want to uh, talk to you about bringing the exhibition. We want to talk to you about photographing some of our unsheltered community in our own community. And and interestingly, uh, we are looking to most likely, I think it's going to happen, we're going to do the road I call home Kansas City in 2023. Oh. Well, I hope we can maybe get you to come to Columbia. I think it would be a wonderful gift to this community to have you here. To see the profound photography of Randy Bacon, visit randybacon.com and also 7billionwands.org, which will soon be 8billionwands.org. And if you have a story that you would like to share with the 7 Billion Wands movement, there is a way to contact the team under the Share Your Story tab. Randy, Gosh, thank you so much for the work you do and for moving me to tears and for making time to chat today. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, I really have enjoyed talking with you. Over my many years at the Columbia Art League, organizing hundreds of exhibits, there was one medium that I saw far less regularly than the others, colored pencil. There were a handful of artists who submitted coloured pencil works, and I have to give a shout out here to the amazing talents of Jennifer Sluha, whose automotive artworks with their shiny reflective chrome were phenomenal in their detail. And of course, a good artist working in any medium can drill down to the smallest detail. But for me, coloured pencil is the king for fine details. Individual strands of fur or hair, the dimples on a berry, the barbs of a feather, or the texture of bark. And when those are beautifully executed in coloured pencil, it's just mesmerising. And I think that in my five years of hosting Speaking of the Arts, I have not had a coloured pencil artist on the show until today. Wanda Taylor lives in Cameron in northwest Missouri and has been working in coloured pencil for 25 years. She writes that very few things in life make her happier than holding a pencil in her hand, and it shows. Her website, wandataylorart.com, has a gallery of dogs and cats whose fur is so lifelike you can feel it. Plus there are birds, feathers, still life works reminiscent of the Dutch Golden Age, all richly textured with beautiful, saturated colours. This past summer, she was a juried exhibitor at the Smoky Hills River Festival in Salina, Kansas, and also exhibited at the Lawrence Art in the Park and the Westport Art Festival. Plus, she teaches classes at the Albrecht Kemper Museum in St. Joseph. And for the next little while, she is my guest. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Wanda. Well, thank you for having me. I have to confess, I got totally flooded with oxytocin when I was looking at your website because I wanted to <laughs> snuggle with all the cats and dogs. 
dogs because they're so beautifully rendered that they they just feel tactile and each of them have that beautiful gaze of love that make pet owners just melt at their knees and then spend hundreds of dollars on catnip and shoe toys. <laughs> Are you a cat or a dog person? You know, I don't understand I'm both. I mean, I love both. I've had both. I've had both at the same time. I've had horses. I don't understand the division between cat and dog people. (laughs) It's just like, can't we all just get along? I love them both. So you write in your bio that you've always found drawing to be your natural discipline. What is your history as an artist? You know, ever since I was a child, I've been obsessed with drawing. My mother says 18 months old. I don't know if I believe that, but I've always wanted to draw, even when I was in classes in grade school and high school. The drawing teaching was where I got the most excited. I could never get a paintbrush to do what I wanted it to do. But when we had a drawing lesson, I really got very excited about that. But your colored pencil career came relatively late then. And I think you said that you were working in pen and ink and then you wanted some additional color. And that was how you almost stumbled into the world of colored pencil. Yeah, I really did stumble into it because I always loved the value studies that you can get with pen and ink and with charcoal and with graphite. And I loved that black and white Um, and getting all those grays in between. And then I just decided to use my daughter's little colored pencils and put in some red. And one day I was at an art supply store and saw they actually made professional colored pencils. And I thought, huh, really? And so I picked up some Derwent's. I remember they were Derwent Studio. So not even the highest grade colored pencils. And oh my gosh, that was it. I I instantly fell in love with them. Well, like you say, we're all so familiar with colored pencils from childhood. But of course, the way an adult colored pencil artist uses their tool is very much different than our childhood assortment of endlessly yes. blunt instruments. Yes. And I'm curious what are some of the challenges of the medium? The biggest challenge and is what turns a lot of artists off is it's a slow medium. It's a layering technique. And I was very happy to hear you say you were talking about the hairs and the fur. That's an illusion, The way I like to do it is a layering technique, but the first, I don't know, maybe four, five, six layers, they're not detailed at all. And it's at the very end of the process that you put in all those little details and that's when it all starts to come to life. And that's when it's it's really exciting at that point. That really gets me charged up. And some colored pencil artists use a solvent to create kind of a matte background. But you say that you don't typically use solvents in your work. And I wonder, does that really alter the amount of time you have to spend with the layering? What does that mean practically? It really does. And I don't think it's because I don't have anything against solvents. And I love the work that I've seen with them. And sometimes it'll even give a more painterly look, which is beautiful. I just never, ever used them because I didn't know about them until later on. And by that time, I was so comfortable with my technique and how I, I like to feel that pencil grabbing the paper. And when I start to use a brush or a blender, it takes away what makes me happy about colored pencil. So I just never felt the need to use them. And I love 
creating that texture and seeing those pencil strokes. I like that. So when most of us pick up a color pencil and scratch on a piece of paper, <laughs> there is always white showing through it. And that's yes. that toothiness of the paper. Yes. And so obviously, the harder that you're pressing down with your pencil, then the more you're flattening the paper out. But that creates an issue, I'm guessing, if you're adding extra layers, because you've kind of burnished the paper at that point, and exactly. you can't really add onto it. So how many gentle layers would you do underneath a painting? You know, I always get in trouble with this because <laughs> uh, colored pencil artists, I didn't even know there was a thing as colored pencil artists until like I had been into it for years. And a lot of times take great pride in, I have 20 layers, I have 25 layers. <laughs> I find that I lose track, first of all. I lose complete <laughs> track of what I'm doing. I, I kind of get absorbed, so absorbed into it. I don't know how many layers. Some some spots I might have four layers and other spots I have 20. I don't know. It's just until it looks good I'm and I'm happy with it. And I think a lot of times the paper has a lot to do with it. The paper I use is a pastel mat, and a lot of times the paper is colored. So it doesn't really matter that you have paper coming through. And sometimes that helps with the whole illusion of the texture. In terms of the pencils you use, in the world of professional grade color pencils, there are ones that are more wax-based, ones that are more oil-based, though in truth, they're really all a blend of both oil and wax. Yes. What are the options for you? What is at your disposal? Like, How does everything differ in how you would use them? Well, because of the paper I've been using, the pastel mat, I used to use a Caran d'Ache Luminance a lot. And it's, I love that brand of pencil. And I still do. But now I really rely heavily on Faber-Castell Polychromos. They're so creamy and so rich. And they have different levels of light fastness, which I really rely on the light fastness. So I don't have to spray or treat any of my work. And then my new favorite is Derwent Light Fast Pencils. It's not a real large line, but every single pencil in that line is light fast. And they have beautiful creamy colors. And they're just, I just, that's my new favorite. So without that light fastness, a colored pencil piece of art would fade like a watercolor, would it? Not quite as bad, but it would, especially if you didn't have UV glass mm. and if you didn't have really good paper that you were working on. It will. And sometimes if you have a pencil that is too much of a binder, you'll get what they call a wax bloom. And I've known artist friends that have had, after a couple years of it being framed, had this fog kind of come over it. And that's the binder coming through. Oh, wow. And that's more of a cheap pencil. That's not a real good pencil. And spraying will kind of keep that from happening. Spraying it with like a workable fixative. This is going to sound like a basic question, but I feel sure that it's one of those things that comes up a lot in colored pencil forums. And that is how best to sharpen your pencils as the detail work is so incredibly fine. I'm wondering if there's a plethora of do's and don'ts. Like what is your take on the pencil sharpening debate? <laughs> Prismacolor makes a really good handheld pencil sharpener. I have probably 10 of them. And, you know, because it's a handheld sharpener, they dull quickly, but they're cheap. 
And then I have a Boston, just your regular office electric pencil sharpener that I really like. The secret to that is to clean them out every once in a while with a graphite pencil. Um. You run a graphite pencil through it, like maybe once every few months, and that cleans out all that wax and oil in there. You obviously do a lot of um, pet portraits, and I'm, I'm sure they're all commissions. I mean, looking at your website, they're just, they're just gorgeous. Thank you. And if I could get my dog to sit still and have her photograph taken, I would be making an inquiry. <laughs> <laughs> but left to your own creative devices, what do you love to draw the most? Well, animals were my first love. And then I love simple still lifes. I love the Dutch masters, the lighting, the the simplicity of making a lemon look important mm. when, with nothing else. That just gets me so charged up. But then I started doing those and I was really happy with where I was going. But then I started wanting to put wildlife in the still lifes. So I did a series of still lifes with birds and they were very successful. I only have one left. And then I started doing, wanting to do more, but I was putting bees in them and little butterflies and things like that. And I really have enjoyed doing that. I just came back from Florida. I've taken all these reference photos this week and I'm so excited to get started. I want to do a bunch more still lifes with birds in them. And I keep trying to think of still lifes to do that are large with big like a flamingo in it or mm. something. I don't know. My brain's going all over the place. <laughs> so, and then another project I was real excited about was starting a senior pet project where, you know, people always want their cute little dog or cat, but I've drawn a few elderly animals and they, they're just something so special about their face and their mm. little cataract eyes and I don't know. I There's two different things fighting each other that I, I can only concentrate on one thing. I get obsessed <laughs> about one thing and I can't do, I'm not one of those artists that has four or five things going. I have to focus. <laughs> well, Wanda, I could chat to you for the next hour about color pencil, but to see Wanda Taylor's art, visit her website at wandataylorart.com and you can also see her work in person at the Northland Artists Gallery in Weston. And if you are interested in taking a class with Wanda, she has a happy hour evening class coming up on December the 1st at the Albrecht Kemper Museum in St. Joseph and a half-day class at the Central Souls Studio in Parkville on December the 3rd. Wanda, thank you so much for sharing a little of your art with us today and for making time to chat. Oh, thank you so much. It was so fun. Samaya Sudduth has a long list of talents and I love that some of those skills are ones that don't often appear on an artist's resume. Alongside photography, mural painting, public art and teaching, there is meditation and mindfulness, landscape design, plant identification, urban agriculture, lift and power tool operation. In other words, come the revolution – I want to be in Samaya's pod, though I'm not sure if I'd be allowed in as I really don't bring any useful post-revolutionary skills to the party. St. Louis-based Samaya is a multidisciplinary artist whose work includes large-scale public art murals, urban gardens and living yoga studios, sound healing performances and digital illustration. 
Within their manifold artistic practices, there are multiple conceptual forces at work, such as social and environmental justice, spirituality, healing, and the desire to provoke joy. Samaya's work is a fluid creative practice, a way to explore and connect their multifaceted interests and influences, all united by the driving question of how can they provoke positive change, healing and expansion of the collective consciousness through their creative practice. You may have seen Samaya's mural work of echinacea blooms at Lambert St. Louis Airport or since this summer as part of the Walls Off Washington project in St. Louis's Grand Center Arts District, where Samaya is one of 20 local, national and international artists invited to create thought-provoking murals. And if all of that wasn't enough, Samaya is also a mother, a full-time K-6 through arts educator at a St. Louis progressive independent school, and possibly my favourite, a backyard chicken expert, which is the one post-revolutionary skill I thought I could offer. But clearly that job is already taken. Samaya, it is a pleasure to welcome you to Speaking of the Arts. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I wouldn't say that I'm a backyard chicken expert, but I have twice saved two of my chickens' lives when they got fly strike and I had to handpick literally hundreds of marauding maggots off their butts. So might that make me badass enough to be in your gang? (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely, because I've never had to do that and I have no desire to do that. And, you know, chickens have such weird things that happen to them. So I, I'm lucky I have not ever experienced that. <laughs> I'm glad I have that one skill. Yeah, that's pretty serious. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you have all of these artistic and urban agriculture skills that were handed down to you. Your granny taught you to sow. Your ancestors were sharecroppers in Arkansas and you grew up with a backyard garden. But your mural painting urges, I believe, were inspired by seeing graffiti as a first grader and going home and drawing on the ceiling. How did that work out for you? Um, You know, it didn't work out very well at the time. I think my mom was like really in shock and she was just like, oh my God, I can't believe my child is even turning into like a gang member. (laughs) You know, and I thought it was so interesting and I was like, okay, this is really cool. This is really interesting. And I had never seen anything like that. And my thought was just to go home and get a chair And we had like a drop ceiling in the basement and I got a crayon and I just started writing my classmates' names on the (laughs) ceiling. You know, graffiti is tagging your name. It's, you know, people call it writing. And I was just going through the list of classmates and writing their names on the ceiling. And that stayed on my ceiling in my basement probably like my entire My entire adult life, probably up until like age 30, I'm 35. So I think my mom redid the basement a couple of years ago before she passed away. And that's when we finally got rid of that piece. (laughs) But, you know, it stayed there for quite some time. And is that where mural painting really started for you? Yeah, you know, and I, and I think now, like as a teacher, I think about like the things I do with my students and I'm like, I wonder if this is going to make that light bulb click like it did for me. That 
And then I remember we did like a rainforest unit in elementary school where we turned like our entire hallway into a rainforest. It was made out of paper. And I just remember being like in awe or like this euphoric feeling like it did something to me. And it was the same thing with the graffiti, like something just made sense in my mind. And then now that I'm an adult, you know, it's kind of like I have flashbacks and I think, oh, this is where the pieces started coming together. But yeah, yeah, I'm definitely one of those people, like if I see something and I'm interested in it, you know, I'm going to attempt to do it. I think I read somewhere that your mother was an artist and she had a Frida Kahlo book and that was really inspirational to you. How did that Frida Kahlo moment alter your relationship with art? Yeah, my mom was an artist. Uh, She actually had the dream of becoming an architect And, you know, she drew a lot in her free time and just really enjoyed sketching people at work and stuff like that. But she went through this, like, moment where, you know, I think I've gone through this as a mom, too, where I've thought, okay, I am going to, like, really focus on myself and do things for myself and take some classes or do things just for me. And she was taking a bunch of classes at the community college And she started buying these art books. And I was in high school at the time. And I went in her room. You know, she had a shelf. And I looked at the shelf and I saw Frida Kahlo's artwork. And I started looking through the book. And I had had never seen anything like that in my life. And I just thought, wow, this is so... It was bizarre to me at the time. And just so mind-blowing. And I could tell she was really just coming from a place of like pure... I don't know, it's just like divine orchestration or like, you know, channeling something because the work was so unique and I had never seen anything like that before. And I'll never forget that. I feel like I was changed once I looked at that book of her artwork. You talk about in your work the idea of fluidity in your creative Mm -hmm. practice. Talk to me about some of those moments of integration where that fluidity has really manifested itself. I think I'm really lucky in that, like, my undergraduate background is, you know, from a school, Webster, which was highly conceptual, I think, to be, like, in the Midwest. And I got into my practice through installation and sculpture, but, you know, I was always encouraged to do things very conceptually and kind of push things beyond, like, a sculpture or installation or a drawing or ceramics. And I think that's where my love of, like, multidisciplinary and cross-disciplinary work comes from because I think if we just limit ourselves to one thing, sometimes that can be great, but it's also it's also limiting. So I feel like the fluidity in my artwork is driven by my personality and my interests and... I'm a very, I think I'm an open-minded person. And I think the more I allow myself to be open, the more I can learn and the more I can experience and the more joy I feel. You know, I don't limit things to a certain discipline or a certain media. If an idea lends itself to a material, you know, I'm going to explore that. I make whatever I feel like I'm being called to make. Mm. Part of my practice is also exploration and just exploring my creative self and which I think is like a part of my spiritual self as well. So it's an exploratory practice. And I think, sure, you can try something and it might not work, but you don't know unless you, you go through that exploration. And I think mistakes are where, where, where you learn and you grow. Exactly. 
Tell me about the tarot card series, the Confluence Tarot that you're working on. That's really predominant on your website. There's five, mm-hmm. the first five tarot cards, Justice, the Devil, Death, the Empress, and the Hanged Woman. Tell us about those. So tarot is something that's just still so it's so interesting to me. I love the symbolism and the imagery and the color palette. And just visually, it's striking and interesting. And the cards have meanings upright and reversed. And for example, the death card, it doesn't mean someone's going to die. Death is seen as a symbol of renewal and rebirth. So that death card in particular, I was thinking about how agriculture has very much turned into like monocrops and To me, that card is a symbol of like a renewal or a rebirth or a reconfiguration, specifically looking at contemporary agricultural practices in the in the West. Because if we look at agricultural practices across the world, most farmers are women and most farmers are people of color. So we have this stereotype of a farmer, which is, you know, not an accurate reflection or depiction of globalized farming and um even our, our history of farming. So this whole series, the Confluence Tower series, is this, this is a work in progress. You, you are going to do a whole deck mm-hmm. and it's all based around this idea of agriculture. It's based on the uh, Mississippi River watershed, the culture, the history, the, the present, the past, humans, um, systems, animals, plants. And I started this in graduate school as a project And it's just kind of unfolded over time and it's still very relevant. And as an artist, I think that we are creators of culture, but also we send a message with our artwork. And I think there's, you know, there's a lot of trauma and and negativity and shocking images. And I'm very concerned with my impact that I have on like my viewer. So I'm wanting to, of course, like look at the harsh and, kind of hard things that we definitely need to talk about, but I also want to evoke and and share and perpetuate joy and abundance and alternatives. So that's something more that I'm wanting to like incorporate as I continue this series. So with so many artistic outlets, so many different artistic skills that you have access to, where are you at your happiest creatively? Mm, when I get into a flow state, no matter what it is, really the murals are very liberating to me. And when I get into a flow state and I forget what time it is or how long it's been and everything kind of falls away, that's that's when I'm at my happiest because I feel like I am I'm channeling something or divine energy is like moving through me. And I feel like that is like the highest honor to to create in a flow. And, I, and I've noticed that it happens the most when I'm painting murals because I get to play with the color and I'm being paid well to create public art. So it's not that subversive because, you know, it's not the graffiti <laughs> that inspired me, but 
You know, I'm getting paid to play and paint on someone's wall, and it feels very liberating. <laughs> you can see more of Samaya's work at spiritscapes.life. And if you are either passing through Lambert St. Louis Airport or in the city's Grand Center Arts District, look for Samaya's murals there, both of which feature giant purple echinacea flowers. And Samaya Sudoth, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your art with us this evening and for making time to chat. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. A good painting is not what you see, but what the painting makes you feel. I'm sure that is a quote from someone much wiser than me, but it is a close relative of the mantra I used to tell people all the time about buying art. Buy what you love. Buy what moves you. As the artist Michael McClure says, there is a world around us that we see and there is a world within us that we feel. And where those two places meet is where the magic happens. Michael is an oil and acrylic painter who takes his inspiration from the beauty of the natural world, which he has in abundance outside his door in Willow Springs in the Ozarks. Michael graduated with a fine arts degree from Stanford University in 1972 and was told that as representational painting had all been done already, there was no point bothering with it. But he did want to bother with it. He wanted to paint what he saw, but in glorious riots of colour, to paint flowing creeks and colourful rocks, rich shadows and landscapes that are contrasts of stillness and movement, foaming seascapes and glinting riverscapes, spring light and twilight light and warm light on cold snow. Michael calls himself an impressionist painter, taking his inspiration directly from nature and aiming to capture the essence of a scene in one session. Because, as he says, when you are expressing your emotions via colour and light, you need to get it all down before your mood changes. Michael's works sit in private and corporate collections, both in the United States and overseas, and he is a signature member of the National Oil and Acrylics Painters Society. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you. Your works are so vibrantly colourful, so full of light and space and sparkle. So I'm wondering if you either, A, are always in an emotionally upbeat mood, or B, whether you just don't paint when you're in a bad mood. I, I can't really answer that. It's what happens. I don't really try to avoid painting when I'm not in a good mood. It just seems like color is my emotional language, you know, and no matter what state I'm in, that's what happens. And I do consciously try to push it beyond what I'm actually looking at out there, what I see. When I was starting out learning to paint, I consciously tried to copy, you know, the exact color, if I could, to match what was there. That was considered highly skilled. But over time, I began to realize that you have to express it your way. And my way was to sort of enhance it with my emotional, whatever the message is coming from inside me. I see that. And I was looking through your Facebook page because I always like to see what, you know, you find interesting things about people and you see the artwork of artists. And there was a pair of photographs there 
One is a photograph of a country lane in what looks to be a late fall afternoon. The trees are bare. And for me, the predominant colour I see is brown. But your painting of that photograph called Approaching Sunset is a, a riot of pinks and reds and oranges. And it almost looks like a spring morning. And that fascinates me. How do you see those things that I cannot? I don't know. It's it's more feeling them and permitting myself to let them come through on my brush. I grab colors as I go, and more and more I'm reaching for a stronger version, actually, of what I'm seeing that will correspond to how I'm feeling it. So it, I'm kind of tricking myself <laughs> <laughs> along with everyone else, I guess, so that it's more of a an emotional statement than an actual literal representation of the colors that, that are there. If you look at the actual colors that are there, even fall colors are nowhere near as colorful mm. as we think they are. But it's really our experience of them that counts as far as I'm concerned. So now having painted impressionistically for so many years... Does that alter your view of the color of daily life? As you're just going through your day, visiting people, going to places, do those colors flood you? Well, a couple of things come to mind. There's three things that I know something about, if anything. Um, one is art, another is spirituality, and another is emotional work. Because I've done all three quite a bit in my life. So I've been meditating for 50 years now, every day. And the last, I'd say, 20 to 30 years, I've been in a very deliberate way exploring my emotional self. And in fact, trying to heal the, you know, the wounds that we all carry. So to more clear the channel. So I can just be kind of a clear channel of expression for whatever might come through me. So that's kind of what's going on underneath everything. There's all that information or growth or healing or whatever you want to call it on the spiritual and emotional levels, I feel feeds right into my work. Because when a person does creative work, it's a direct expression of their soul in whatever condition their soul is in. However, they're able to access it without ideas or fear or whatever getting in the way. Maybe this ties into that idea of, of a spiritual expression, but one of the things that I notice in your work too is your painting of light. Your works are abundant in golden landscapes and dusk on water and dappled laneways and glints and sparkles on rivers and seas. And I'm curious whether there has been a light that has ever eluded you, a capricious sprite of the spectrum that you just can't get on your paintbrush. <laughs> well, it's, you know, you can never exactly do it as great a job as nature does in creating these amazing expressions of light. And you just try to approximate it. Mm. So I feel like in a way I've always come up short. But 
I try to make up for that by exaggerating. I exaggerate contrast. I exaggerate color differences between warm and cool and sort of make up for it. You know, lately I've been looking at, I have my favorite artists like Sargent and Soroya and all these great masters who were so good at, at doing light very, very accurately. And I look at them and I just go, oh my God. You know? <laughs> and almost their mantra was the more subtlety, the better, the closer in value between one color and another, between one shade and another was the hallmark of a master painter. And I've struggled with that thought, you know, well, am I going off in the wrong direction here? But again, I've just had to obey the prompting of my soul. I'm not them. And so I will exaggerate and <laughs> I'm still working on feeling good about it. <laughs> Well, your work's so beautiful. And you've studied with a lot of great painters and you've taught classes all over the country. And I wonder if you might leave us with a particular aha moment that had a lasting impact on you as a painter. Hmm. Gosh, there have been so many. But, you know, I'll give a very recent example. I just got back from Tucson, Arizona, a family gathering. And of course, I had to go visit some of my favorite galleries while I was there. And I walked into one of them and I couldn't believe my eyes. There was two of the world's top, top most painters, Chinese guy, Mian Situ and John Asaro, who is pretty much worshipped by most representational artists. And I just kind of wanted to break down in tears because mm -hmm. I just felt like this is such a gift. I happen to own a Mian Situ, and I look at that thing every day. Mostly, you know, what I tell people, and this is what I tell them about workshops, the value of seeing the work of the great masters is just let yourself absorb what they have, what they're communicating, the expression of their soul on canvas. And there will be a communication, there will be some learning, some aha, but you may not know it, maybe not until later. And to me, that's the whole value of art, is that it's soul communication, it isn't intellectual. And that's what happened to me at that, you know, strolling into that gallery, and it's like, what a gift, hmm. what a gift. Well, you can see the work of Michael McClure at michaelmcclure.com. And if you are down in Willow Springs and you let him know in advance, you can also visit his studio gallery. Michael, thank you for sharing your light and colour with us today and for making time to chat. Thank you so much, Diana. It's been great. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can always connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest this evening, portrait photographer Randy Bacon, visual artist Samaya Sudduth, 
coloured pencil artist Wanda Taylor and painter Michael McClure. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening on this Thanksgiving. This has been Speaking of the Arts, and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.